0: Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Health Law Section. I am your host, Stephanie Dorville, and my guest today is Greg Dembski. Greg and I have a history together. I first started my career in health law at the HHS OIG, where he was for nearly 30 years, but I know that many of our listeners would be more interested in hearing from Greg about his background. So welcome, Greg, and how are you today?
1: I'm great, and it's uh, really fun to be able to do this with you, Stephanie. And it's been wonderful to see your career progression from afar, and then to be able to, to be here together to talk about where I am in my career.
0: Thank you so much for that. So, please talk about your path at the HHS OIG and the roles you have and what you're doing now. <laughs>
1: Uh, sure. Well, I joined right out of law school at hhs back in 1990, which is something I used to say to everyone joining the office. And over time, it would become clear that people joining the office usually weren't born by the time I had started uh, <laughs> in the office. And it was a small office with about 14 attorneys in the counsel's office at that time. And then the office grew Uh, particularly with the enactment of the HIPAA law in 1996, which gave more budget for fraud fighting to OIG and DOJ and others. And that allowed us to do different types of work. And that's where we started working on say, corporate integrity agreements, and then we're required to do advisory opinions. So my career path, I was so fortunate to have the opportunity to do different things, administrative litigation, Advising on audits and evaluations that OIG might do, and then civil cases under the False Claims Act, some of the bigger cases. And then I was able to ease into some management, supervisory, and then management roles and leadership roles. So that the last 10 years that I was in the office, I was the chief counsel. And when I left, we had about 130 people in the office a lot of attorneys, analysts, paralegals, administrative staff and just a, a really great office driven by a great mission full of people who were motivated by that mission. So I feel very fortunate to have a 32-year career in the federal government at hhs
0: And I, I was so privileged to be there for a very short period of time, but at a very momentous period of time, it seems, right after the Pfizer $3.2 billion settlement in 2009. I I had just joined that year, like in 2008, 2009. So. It was already growing then and it's it's grown so much now. It's so great to see that so many of my former colleagues are still there and they're thriving and the office is doing great work to um, protect the f- federal FISC. So 32 years at the government, but you're not retired. Where did you go?
1: <laughs> well, I, I decided it was the right time for me and for the office, for me to do something different and for somebody else to have the chance to lead the office. I actually was on a temporary assignment last year. Once the IG, Christy Grimm was confirmed, I was acting as her principal deputy the number two person in the organization. And other people were acting in the council's office. And it was great to see that, see people in new roles and different roles. And I really realized it, that 10 years is a long time to be the leader of an organization. And it's good to get some fresh perspectives in leadership. And for me personally, it was a good time for me to try something different. OIG is in a great position. We had confirmed IG, is great. And we have a very talented staff and leadership in that council's office. So I decided after talking with a lot of people and thinking about it for a while, that something that I'd like to try is to advance the same values that I've had through my federal career of integrity and promoting compliance in healthcare um, and see if I could Do that in the context of counseling private clients. You know, our perspective and my perspective in OIG always was: it's hard to operate in the US healthcare system. That's why OIG provided so much guidance to try to help providers and their attorneys figure out what the rules of the road are, have good compliance programs, know what risk areas are, and, and operate, but I never looked at it as thinking that most people in healthcare are just trying to cheat the system people in healthcare are generally driven by a mission uh, just like we were driven by a mission in the government a mission of helping people whether it's providing direct patient care providing pharmaceuticals medical devices a full range of work that hopefully improves health and so i feel like i can hopefully bring some insights that can help people um, and organizations figure out how to best be in compliance. And then if there are problems, figure out how to to deal with those in ways that make sense for that organization, which often will probably make sense for the government as well.
0: Definitely. I mean, there's so much of navigating the gray that we have to do in healthcare. And it's so funny that you say that's the reason why you are where you are. And that's sort of the reason why I was motivated to go in-house as well. So it's so funny how it all comes full circle. We all have very mission-driven careers within healthcare,
1: right? Right. And it, you know, it's um, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing in my career in the federal government is being a lawyer and a trusted advisor and counselor for people who have to make difficult decisions. Some of which are legal decisions, yeah. but also judgmental decisions. And my hope is that I'll have the opportunity to do that in the in the private sector with organizations. And leaders of organizations in in all aspects of the industry
0: so you already touched on parts of my next question you know trying to be a trusted advisor and someone who can help clients to navigate very difficult issues in the healthcare industry what skills have been instrumental in your success as you know chief counsel and now in private practice
1: yeah well I would first of all say I was incredibly lucky and fortunate um, in a lot of ways in my career. So I think that is a major part of my success, but I think that as a more junior attorney, writing, editing, and, you know, learning the substantive areas and being able to present either on in paper or verbally an objective analysis or in an, or an advocacy situation. Those are not easy things, and they take time and practice and repetition and focus to learn. As a as I move more into leadership positions, those skills are important, but less important. And one of the things that I think I'm good at is listening to people. And I think that that's true at any level, whether you uh, have nobody that you're supervising, or you're particularly if you're leading an office, though. I felt it was important to really listen to what people's concerns were um, and hear them and as a leader be genuine in how I operated and how I communicated and I think that's been particularly challenging the communication part particularly challenging in the pandemic when we went from five days a week in the office to zero days and then zoom or teams or whatever and trying to keep that connection between people because that's so important to people's engagement in their work and job satisfaction and feeling like they've got a a fulfilling a professional path so i think just being being genuine and communicating and communicating both directions saying things that i believe in trying to be transparent um but also listening to people
0: that's very true even in house, you know, at the government, you were the the law firm of the HHS organization, which is a very large organization. And so you're dealing with not only clients internally to the, I, you know, the Office of the Inspector General, but you're dealing with other agencies. I mean, just going back to how the Office of Counsel became so large. People might not have realized that it was HIPAA that really gave them a lot of more a lot more power. I mean, the history of HIPAA is so interesting, and you know, especially in this era.
1: Absolutely, people associate HIPAA with privacy, and those are very important provisions of that statute. But it also established the Healthcare Fraud and Abuse Control Account, or HICBAC, which has been the driving force of funding so much anti-fraud activity between, um, and really. Providing resources for the partnership that was so strong and continues to be very strong between OIG and the Department of Justice and many other partners in federal and state state agencies.
0: Yes. And I mean, just the evolution of the role that HIPAA had in evolution of the OIG, you know, that brings me to think about what are your thoughts on the evolution of health law practice in general? Um, are new junior lawyers facing challenges that didn't exist when you were going up the ranks?
1: Well, absolutely. You know, when I joined the office, uh, when I interviewed for my position, I did not know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid, literally. And I was still hired. And then the level of substantive knowledge and background of the people that the office now hires or brings in as interns or law clerks. Uh, It's so impressive. A lot of people have clinical backgrounds. A lot of people have master's degrees in public health or um, similar types of disciplines. And they've devoted real thought and energy into developing knowledge in the health law area. So just in the training, and there's so much more in the way of programs in law schools um, to develop that. But it's just a, a very different, situation as far as the level of preparedness and substantive knowledge of people coming out of law school that are getting into healthcare. And then just the whole whole universe of health law is so much broader. The world, it always gets this, the US healthcare system never gets more simple. It gets more (laughs) complex. Laws are changed. Laws are enacted. You know, just this past year, we've got the Inflation Reduction Act and the new drug pricing, reporting, and negotiation provisions, that doesn't affect a lot of sectors, but it's just one example of, here's a whole new world, this is something the government's really, the Medicare has never done, Mm -hmm. Um, and there's going to probably be litigation, there's going to be regulations, there's going to be guidance, there's going to be, and everything, and that just adds on to what already exists, an incredibly complex system. Yeah.
0: A lot of um, higher expectations for new entrants into the legal industry, but also just a lot of new opportunities because yeah. now everybody's at the same baseline level. I remember when um, information blocking under the 21st Century Cures Act came out, nobody knew anything about it <laughs> except for the folks who had you know been working on the law. And now the OIG is going to be involved in that enforcement regime, and you know I'm sure all sorts of people are going to be chopping at the bit to join OIG and become lawyers there.
1: But yeah, now you're in
0: private practice. Yes. So what is the biggest difference so far between public
1: and private practice? Well, I'm less than two months in. So was, um, I'm still very much at the beginning of the learning curve, having never worked at a law firm. I worked part-time in law school, but it was a very different type of firm in a different era. But, you know, it's a business. It's a for-profit business and so there's a whole different set of considerations related to that that is just not part of what one thinks about or does in the federal government it's also a law practice where you'd be left to figure out whether there are conflicts between existing clients and with a big firm there's a lot of clients and a lot of considerations in that area and you know the few the few conversations that i've been able to have with clients have been, you know, sort of consistent with my expectations and consistent with my hopes that I feel like there's some something of value that I can can bring to help them figure out how to proceed. So that's been the least, I mean, that's been great, but just sort of learning the business of, of a law firm is, is still challenging.
0: Yeah, one versus many clients, although you have many clients within the government, but ultimately it's the U.S. The government that's your client.
1: Right, but well, you're right. As you alluded to before, there's a lot of relationships to work through in the government, and BOIG in particular has a uh, has this delicate balance of being within the department but also being independent and reporting separately to Congress. And successful IGs find the right balance of being engaged with the leadership of the department, but also being sufficiently independent and objective and calling it as they see it. And that's not an easy.
0: No, especially as being, isn't it the biggest um, Office of Inspector General out of the 67 that exist or so?
1: Yes, because so much money flows through HHS, through the Medicaid, primarily Medicare and Medicaid programs, it is the biggest OIG. I would still say it is vastly undersized for the size of its mission. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look at the relative size of departments compared to their OIGs, the HHS OIG is actually very small as a percentage of the overall HHS budget. And that's just looking at the budget because, and that's driven by Medicare and Medicaid, but there's other parts of the department like FDA, NIH, CDC, mm-hmm. where there may not be huge budgets there, but their impact on the lives of Americans is is huge. Yeah. So- We always use
0: the, that as a party fact. Did you know, Did you know that the HHS OIG is the biggest IG and people are like, it's not- the Department of Defense. I'm like, no,
1: <laughs> think about
0: what you do in healthcare and what you touch on in healthcare, and now you see why it's so big.
1: So, exactly. well, the the defense one is there's a, well, a large one too, but the HHS is is the biggest, the biggest spending department, and it's the biggest OIG.
0: So, with all of the things that you've had to touch on in healthcare, I know HHS OIG has always been associated with fraud waste and abuse like they are the protector of the federal fisc. But what are the other topics that you find exciting in health law?
1: Well, I mean even at OIG there's two missions. There's the the fraud and abuse but also promoting the economy efficiency and effectiveness of the HHS programs. And we sort of also looked at that as the healthcare system as a whole because Medicare and Medicaid are so important in that. So I I'm interested in anything that can make our healthcare system more efficient because it's not we spend a lot of money and we don't get the best results when you compare to other countries. And at the same time, part of that is because we have so much innovation in our country, and I think as technologies continue to advance in all sorts of ways it'll be interesting to see how those can be applied to make people's health and lives better I mean we had not necessarily a high tech example but telehealth during the pandemic was a obviously a vast increase and it allowed for more access to care and we're going to we're not going to go back to that prior pre-pandemic world because people who otherwise weren't getting access to care now could get it and with zoom technology and video appointments people who otherwise, because of geographic or economic or whatever reasons, couldn't go to see a physician or clinician now have access. But the technologies are so much beyond that, from AI to wearables to, you know, all sorts of things that are going to have the potential to improve people's lives. Um, that's exciting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that develops in the future. and they're going to raise legal issues too. And so I hope to have the opportunity to actually be advising some companies that are coming up with innovative ideas that may not have any background in operating in healthcare, but need to get advice about how to operate in this complex regulatory environment so they can bring their products to market and comply with the law.
0: Well, thank you so much, Greg, for joining me today. I mean, you've been an invaluable resource and leader to HHSOIG, and I'm sure that your clients will assign a lot of value to you, and I look forward to seeing what happens as you grow in private practice. And I also want to thank you for making my experience at the HHSOIG so instrumental to my career and the, to the careers of so many others in the health law industry.
1: Well, that's very kind and I appreciate it and it's it's been really fun to reconnect with you on the last couple of days and and be able to do this this talk. So thank you very much.
0: And now a word from our sponsors.
1: The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health. If you want more content from the ABA Health Law section and listen to narrations of the section's award-winning publications, the ABA Health eSource, and the Health Lawyer, you can register with the ABA Health Law audio app. The service is available for purchase to non-section members and is free for all members of the Health Law section. Go to modiolegal.com slash subscribe slash ABA hyphen health hyphen lawyer to subscribe today.